ordinary people empowered by the Spirit to witness to the Lord Jesus. This is the Acts of the Apostles. For more information, go to carolinesprings.church. Right, let's get into the book of Acts. We are looking at chapters 24 to 26 today, and when I saw that Jonah had given me three chapters, I went, what are you doing to me? I can't preach three chapters. This is ridiculous. I preached for 45 minutes last time on two verses. So what are we going to do today? Well, we're going to race through these chapters. If you've got the blue Bible from your pews, it's around page 906 and you can turn to that. And you will need a Bible because we're looking at so much, it's going to be hard for them to follow through on the screen there. But this three chapters is one of the most exciting and pivotal moments uh, in the history of Christianity. If you remember my last sermon, uh, we were talking about how Christianity... um, was recognised by the Roman Empire at the time because it was part of the Jewish religion. The Jewish religion is called Judaism. Uh, That's what Jesus came out of and what our church is birthed out of. Now, the fact that it was recognised under Judaism is really important to understand because in the Roman Empire, it was illegal to have an unrecognised religion, especially a religion that says, our leader is a new king. Now, that, that was not acceptable. The Christianity was saying Jesus is the emperor of the world. And by the way, Jesus is also God. That is exactly what the emperors of Rome said. The emperor of Rome is the emperor of the world. And by the way, he's also God. And so Christianity was very much seen as you're actually trying to commit treason and perhaps maybe are you trying to overthrow the emperor? And so we saw these things uh, on the coins last time. Uh, Here's some coins. Does anybody remember what these coins were about, what we talked about last time I preached? Anybody real quick can tell us what any of these coins mean? Yeah, go Darcy. Yeah, yes, so that's every time you use money, you're actually kind of worshipping Caesar. What else? What What else is on those coins? Very good. What's that, buddy? Yes, so the Caesar had a baby and to advertise that he released a new batch of coins saying my baby is going to be the king of the world one day, right? This is what coins were used for. Over here you've got a Jewish person who's sitting down crying with uh, some, uh, a coat of armour hang on a stand behind her and that's saying, hey, hey, we beat you, all right? And, and they released all those coins to Judea. Coins were used, was our equivalent of a big aeroplane dropping leaflets over the city. It was a way of releasing information and telling you this is what is going to happen. And so that's what coins were about. And, and these coins were saying that the emperor is the king of the world. You've got Caesar Augustus is the divine son of God written around that coin. All right? So keep that in mind because that's going to be a bit important later on as we go through, through this chapter as well. And so Christianity was kind of sort of okay because it was considered a sect, a small part of Judaism, even though they said some of these funny things. But the big trouble started when the Jews started saying to the Roman governors, no, these guys are not Jewish. They are not part of us. They're trying to overthrow the Roman government in this area. 
and they're different to us and Christianity is growing and it's expanding and it reaches an important moment in these chapters when Christianity needs to break out of being under Judaism and become its own religion in its own right. And so the next three chapters which we're looking at today are actually a court case or a series of court cases about whether Paul is going to get released or not. But if we read it just like that, it's kind of boring. It's just a court case about one guy and it's really not not that meaningful to us in Caroline Springs today. But if we can read these three chapters as the moment when Christianity is really birthed in the world, and if we can read it as the moment when, when the faith that we hold to becomes its own religion, then it kind of starts to become exciting and it becomes more relevant to us. And so this is actually a court case about us. And we're going to watch our faith either be birthed as a legal religion in the eyes of the world at the time and be able to start a massive expansion program or Christianity is going to be crushed and it'll die. And in this whole mix, you've got a massive clash of cultures that we need to understand as we go through these court cases because the court cases were about trying to understand three cultures and how they were going to work together. One was the Jewish culture and all of their history and religion. The other was the Roman Empire culture with the worship of of their emperor. And then also you had the new emerging Christian culture. And how are these three cultures going to work together in the same world? They've all got different values, different languages, different ways of thinking about the world. In fact, all three parties have a different understanding of history and what actually happened. And Jono spoke about this last week how the cultures clashed and and that continues in our society and it gets even more intense this week. And a little illustration of of kind of what's going on happened to us when we were in Thailand. Here's in Thailand, we were in Thailand a couple of weeks ago, my my father-in-law paid for us all to go, which was very nice, I was very excited about that. But we were in Thailand, right? And there's some people here, which there's a crazy monkey that the boys made friends with. This, this um, This little restaurant on the right, we went there every night, right on the beach, it was beautiful and this guy on the left, he was a guy who we got a milkshake from every day and, and he kind of sorted out some tours for us. So we were there trying to get to know the people a little bit as you do, trying to understand the culture a little bit as you do and so part of that you try and speak their language a little bit and we learned that to say thank you you're supposed to say kapunka and they do it in their sing-songy type voice, you know how they go kapunka like that and so I'm trying to go kapunka and um. Every time I did it, apparently I didn't quite do it right because whenever I did it, the little lady up there on the left, she would kind of go <laughs> like this. And whenever we did it at the restaurant, the people would kind of laugh and sometimes the boys would actually turn around and laugh out loud at me. And I was trying to figure out what am I doing wrong? And I asked one of them, I said, what am I doing wrong? And they're going, well, you're saying it like a girl. And I was like, what do you mean you're saying it like a girl? Well, men are supposed to say cup and crap. And I'm like, oh, okay. So I tried to do that, but I couldn't do it because the waiters would come up to us at the end of the meal and go, how was your meal? And I just couldn't bring myself to say, how was your meal? It was cup and crap. I couldn't say. So I just kept on saying cup and car and they just kept on laughing at me and, and that's what it's like. But that's kind of what you're in a culture trying to understand it, trying to be a part of it. But my, my understanding of the word crap is holding me back from being able to... And that's going on in the book of Acti. You've got all these different cultures and, and they're influencing how they're dialoguing together. 
different religious beliefs, different understandings of history, and Christianity is in the middle of all of this, and it's trying to make its way, and the question is, can it take on the world openly in its own right? Now, we're going to read most of the next three chapters, and, uh, and then we'll make some brief comments as we go through. So starting in chapter 24, the start of the trial, five days later, after everything John I preached about last week, the high priest Ananias went down to Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer named Tertullus, and they brought their charges against Paul before the governor. Now, when Paul was called in, Tertullus presented his case before Felix. So you've got Tertullus the lawyer, Felix the governor. And he says, We have enjoyed a long period of peace under you, and your foresight has brought about reform in this nation everywhere and in every way. Most excellent, Felix. We acknowledge this with profound gratitude. All of that is BS. All right? This guy is a lawyer. He doesn't believe any of that. The Jews didn't like the Roman governors at all. They did not respect him. There was not peace under these governors. They rebelled against the governors all the time. They hated the reforms that the Romans brought in and they were not grateful at all. So keep that in mind. This is a lawyer talking and the governor knows that he's a lawyer and he knows that he's being lied to. So whatever gets said next, the governor also is thinking, I'm not sure if I'm going to believe that either. So he says, in order not to weary you further, I would like to request that you be kind enough to hear us briefly. We have found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He is the ringleader of the Nazarene sect and even tried to desecrate the temple. So we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to learn the truth about all these charges we're bringing against him. The Jews joined in the accusation, asserting that these things were true. And when the governor motioned for him to speak, Paul replied... I know that for a number of years you've been a judge over this nation, so I gladly make my defence. You can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship. My my accusers did not find me arguing or stirring up a crowd anywhere in the city and they cannot prove to you the charges they're making. However, I admit that I worship the God of our fathers as a follower of the way which they call a sect. I believe everything that agrees with the law that is written in the prophets. Now that's very important what he says there. What's he doing? He's trying to say, we are the Jewish religion. We're trying to obey the prophets. And he's trying to strengthen that case. And the Jews are trying to say, no, 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 no. He is not part of us. I have the same hope in God as these men, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive to keep my conscience clear before God and man. So he goes on and he talks about what's happened over the last few years and some of the things that that John O talked about last week and, and then they said we'll put the court case off to a little bit later on and time goes on a little bit. And so then we skip to verse 27. When two years had passed, now often we skip over those little phrases, two years, okay, this court case is going on. When two years had passed... Felix, the governor, was succeeded by Porcius, not Porcius the Piggius, but Porcius Festus. So Felix is the old governor, Festus is the new governor. But because Felix wanted to grant a favour to the Jews, he left Paul in prison for Festus to deal with. 
So, Festus becomes the new governor and he decides we need to sort this matter out quickly. So he starts moving things along. And in chapter 25, verse uh, 6, he orders that Paul gets brought before him. And it says, When Paul appeared, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many serious charges against him, which they could not prove. Then Paul made his defence again. I've done nothing wrong against the law of the Jews or against the temple or against Caesar. Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favour, said to Paul, are you willing to go to Jerusalem and stand trial before me on these charges? And Paul's saying, no. Last time I went to Jerusalem, they tried to kill me. So Paul answers in verse 10, I am now standing before Caesar's court where I ought to be tried. I have not done anything wrong to the Jews, as you yourself know very well. You can hear there's a bit of frustration coming into his voice, right? If, however, I am guilty of doing anything deserving death, I do not refuse to die. But if the charges brought against me by these Jews are not true, no one has the right to hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. After Festus had conferred with his counsel, he declared, you have appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you will go. Now, this is a massive moment, and we often don't realise how big that particular moment is. The court cases here, like over two years have gone, and everybody's getting a little bit hot-headed and frustrated. And Paul does something really rash. He says, stuff yous all, I'm sick of this little Mickey Mouse court and all their favours that they're trying to do to each other. I want to go to the emperor and let the emperor either kill me or release me once and for all. That's what appears to be happening. But I want to ask you, is that what happened? Or is maybe something else going on? I want you guys to get in little huddles of two or three or four, have a chat, see if you can figure out if anything else is going along in the background, and uh, we'll give you one minute to do that, and then we'll come back here and see if, see if any of you got some clever answers for me. Off you go, you got less than a minute. Go. Um, he sees as the kangaroo court. Yeah. Leading in directions what he wasn't comfortable with. Yep. So he's got to use his uh, his right as a Roman citizen mm-hmm. to go to a higher court. Yep. Yes, he's he is wanting to go to a higher court, and this is not a court that is really going to achieve anything significant. Yep. Good. Anybody else got any ideas? Go. Yeah, and that's one of Paul's big things that he wants to do, so that's all in the mix there as well. Darcy had a theory, I heard you, what were yours, mate? Um, what he's trying to do is get himself very far away from the Jews so that their influence doesn't get in the way of the process. It also gets him to go to Rome where he's already established the church, now he can preach and proselytise and do all the good mm-hmm. things that Paul normally does. Yeah, I mean, if you get a free ride to Rome, hey, that's as far as he's ever been, really. And, and we know that it's, it's close to where he wanted to go next, which is Spain. So, yeah, maybe helps you get there. So all of those things are going on. There's also something else going on as well, which is really interesting. Do you remember at the start, we said that this chapter is kind of boring if it's just about one guy? 
There's actually something a lot bigger going on, I think. I think that Paul is not just frustrated for himself. I think Paul is frustrated for the wider church. And I think he takes a leap of faith here, not for himself, but for the whole of Christianity. And he's thinking the message of Jesus can never flourish if it's always hemmed in and restricted by the traditions and the politics and the small-mindedness of the area of the world that it was associated with, which was Israel at the time. And I think he's thinking our religion needs to become recognised by the emperor. It's not just that I need to be set free by the emperor, I want Christianity recognised by the emperor. And so to do that, he makes the biggest gamble ever and he says, I appeal to Caesar. And he's not just wanting to bring his case, but he's wanting to bring the whole case of Christianity to the emperor for a decision as to whether it's a legitimate religion. And if you think about it, for Paul, thinking about it that way is actually not a gamble, it's a statement of faith. And he's thinking, I believe that Jesus is real, that Jesus is alive, that Jesus is the king, and Jesus wants his message to spread, and I believe that so much that I'm willing to stake my life on it. Because if I lose this court case, I'm gone. But there's something bigger that he wants to bet everything on. And he wants Christianity to be recognised by the highest court in the world at the time so it can spread openly and freely. But if he loses, that gives all their enemies licence to hunt them down and kill them as much as they want. And so that's what's going on here. And by the way, Paul would get executed as well, right? So that's what's happening. So let's continue reading and see what happens next. So the, the, the governor Festus says, fine, to Caesar you will go, that gets you off my hands, I don't have to deal with you anymore. So Festus has a problem though. He can't send Paul to the emperor without a reason. The emperor will go, who are you? Why are you sending me this guy? Are you a bad governor. So he has to say, well, what the charges are. But he doesn't know the first thing about the Jews and he doesn't know what to send the charges with. So he gets another court case to happen and he brings in an expert called Agrippa and he invites Agrippa, who knows all about the history of these kinds of things, to come and help him make some decisions. And so then we're going to go to chapter 26 and they've introduced the court case, everybody's done what they've got to do And then in 26, Agrippa says to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. So Paul motioned with his hand and began his defence. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defence against all the accusations of the Jews. And especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. See, he's an expert. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. The Jews know all the way that I've lived ever since I was a child, from the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time and can testify, if they're willing, which they're not, that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. And now it is because of my hope in what God has promised our fathers that I am on trial today. This is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night, O King. It is because of this hope that the Jews are accusing me. What is the hope? The hope is in verse 8. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? 
So then he starts to tell his testimony. He talks about uh, how he used to persecute the Christians and then how he got converted. And then he talks about how after that he became a missionary. And he tells that whole story, basically everything we've looked at in the book of Acts so far. And then in verse 22 he says, But I've had God's help to this very day. And so I stand here and testify to small and to great alike that I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen. We're fulfilling the Jewish law, not going against it. That Christ would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead would proclaim light to his own people and to the Gentiles. And at this point Festus interrupted Paul's defence and he said, You are out of your mind, Paul! Your great learning is driving you insane. What's happening here? This, This is not a rational response from Festus, is it? Paul's presenting his case... He's telling his story and suddenly Festus kind of gets angry and he interrupts and he goes, you are insane. And you're insane because you read too many books. Pretty much is what he says. That's not a rational response. That's an emotional response. Have you ever noticed that pretty much whenever the discussion centres around the resurrection, people tend to get really emotional and they respond in emotional, perhaps irrational ways? I have. The resurrection is central to the Christian message. We say, here, see Paul here saying that it's central to the Christian message. He also says that a few few chapters ago in what we read earlier in chapter 17, it says it's central to the Christian message. Also in chapter 24, verse 21, Jesus talked about it, Jesus did it, the apostles talked about it, Paul's talked about it all the way along, the book of Revelation talks about the the resurrection. All through the New Testament, the resurrection is central to what it's all about. And no matter where it is talked about in all of the stories in the Bible... It causes problems. It makes people angry. And it's actually the same today. If you talk about the resurrection with people, people don't want to. I do funerals for people all the time. I was doing a funeral for a family this week and and they believe in, in something that happens after life. But don't talk to me about a resurrection because that's different. Why? I want you to get together in huddles again and see if you can, why is it the people get emotional when resurrection comes up? Have a think about that. We'll give you another minute for that. Just throw some things out there. Go. A sense of entitlement? Yeah? Entitlement to what? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. they don't want you to be... So when someone's lost someone, in case you couldn't hear, people feel like they don't want you telling them what's happened to their loved one. Yeah, good point. Anybody else? Yep. Sure. Yeah, that's a possibility. Very good. Others? Yeah. 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 
it can under, undermine the whole way you've thought about the universe, really, and beyond. Yeah, good point. Anybody else before we move on? Yeah. Yeah, there is a lot of unknown about it. I don't think the resurrection makes people angry because of whether it's actually true or not. If you look at what Paul says to Festus in the next verse, he says, I'm not insane, most excellent Festus. What I'm saying is true and reasonable. And the resurrection actually is reasonable. When people get angry, often they'll tell you, you're an idiot, you're not thinking reasonably. You actually are. Because if you hold a certain worldview, things like the resurrection do become quite reasonable. They only are unreasonable if you don't hold that particular worldview. But then the people that hold this view, worldview, well, well their thinking is unreasonable. All right? It's kind of about where you... There's, there's nothing unreasonable about a resurrection provided you have a couple of important core beliefs. I don't think the resurrection makes people angry because of whether it's true or not. Let me tell you what I think makes people angry about the resurrection. It's the implications of it. If there is no resurrection and people like us are wrong, what are the implications for me? I'm just a fool. That's pretty much the only implication. But if there is a resurrection and those that don't believe in the resurrection are wrong, what are the implications for them? They are frightening. Frightening implications. If there is a resurrection, even in our own lives, there are implications for right now. The implications are, if there is a resurrection, then there is a God. If there is a God, that means human beings are not the most powerful beings in the universe. And if human beings are not the most powerful beings in the universe, probably that means human beings are not in control of our own destiny. Those are frightening implications. And I think that's why people get emotional, because they hate that idea. We want to be in charge. We don't want to be accountable to a higher power. This is what a guy called Chris Tomlin writes about it, but some of you may know Chris Tomlin. This is what he says. Children learn the word mine early in life and it quickly becomes a favourite. Is it up on the screen there? That toy is mine. That cookie is mine. That puppy is mine. We come into the world declaring that certain things are ours, believing we have ownership of them and control over them. And even though we grow out of verbally demanding mine, we don't grow out of feeling like we really do own everything and deservedly so. We daily try to stake claim to our lives and everything in them by clinging to relationships, comfort, our jobs, our homes. We cling to our plans and whatever gives us a sense of certainty. But is anything really ours? Psalm 24 says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all its people belong to Him. As the Creator, God is the only one who can lay claim to the world and everything in it, including us. When we believe in this, we can loosen our grip on our lives and on our things. 
It's not easy to do this, but when we do, we experience true freedom, a real rest that is only found in the assurance of God's control above our own. But if you can't do that, then the idea that God is in control, not you, is very disturbing. It's really unsettling. And the reason that people don't want to admit that God is the creator and the owner and in charge is because that means saying that I don't own my stuff and I don't even own me. And nobody wants to do that. Even Christians don't want to do that. It's hard to do that. And I think that's why people get emotional when they're challenged about the resurrection of the dead. Not because it's impossible, not because it's unreasonable, but because it's costly to believe in the resurrection of the dead. And that's why they get emotional. And in verse 8, a little earlier, Paul asked the question when he first set up this whole debate. He said, why is it so hard for any of you to believe that God should raise the dead? Paul asks, is it so hard to believe? And the answer at the time in the heads of the people he was asking was no. But they didn't want to admit that. It was not hard for Agrippa to believe in the resurrection at all. In fact, he already believed in the resurrection of the dead. There was this whole thing at the time called apotheosis. And you're going to look at some more coins here. This is a coin um, which was minted after Julius Caesar died. There's a picture of Julius Caesar and it says, Divus Julius, Divine Julius. What happened was that Octavian was his son. And Octavian is the one who went on to become the next Caesar, that Caesar Augustus, who's the one who is in all the stories of Jesus' birth, right? Well, in order for Octavius to become the Caesar, he had to get kind of put in by those in charge. And the best way to do that is to be able to say that you are the son of a god. So what happened is, he and other people did this all around him as well. When Julius Caesar died, he had to prove that Caesar had been resurrected into the Godhead. And people did this all kinds of ways. And what happened here, Octavius was super lucky because he held a games in Julius Caesar's honour and trying to get the people's favour so that he could become the, the emperor. And while those games were on, a comet appeared in the sky. And everybody said, oh, it's Julius! He's been resurrected. And that was their evidence for the resurrection of Julius. And that coin, if we go to the coin, see how it's a comet? The top one has like the tail behind it. That coin is saying, this is Julius's comet. He was resurrected. And then over here, we've got an altar with an inscription. The little kind of round thing with something inside, that's actually Julius looking down on an emperor many years later who was trying to kill Julius's family. And that altar was saying, watch out, Julius has been resurrected. He's alive. He's watching you. They already believed in the resurrection of the dead. Um, and they didn't have to have a lot of evidence for it. Nothing like the kind of evidence that, that was around for Jesus. Uh, later on, or Octavius, the guy who I was just talking about, they said that he was also apotheosized. And the only evidence for it 
was that when they burned his body, one of the people in the crowd said, I just saw his spirit go up in the smoke. That was the evidence, right? Now, Jesus' resurrection had a whole lot more evidence than that. So, in their thinking, it was a lot more reasonable than any of these guys. But the point is, they already believed in the resurrection of the dead. And so, when Paul asks, is it so hard to believe? The answer is no, we already believe. They just didn't want to believe about resurrection in the way that the Bible talks about it. And it's the same for us. Is it hard for us to believe that God can raise the dead? Some Christians say, yes, it is hard to believe that God can raise the dead. I've got friends that say that. If you think about the story of Lazarus, some of the people I know say he was not resurrected, he was resuscitated. They're people I love, they're people I respect, but they believe that Lazarus wasn't resurrected, he was resuscitated. And they'll say the same about Jesus, by the way. Now, I, I don't argue with them about it because really they just want to argue the science. And I think that the science is not the big question. What they don't want to admit to themselves is that the science is not the biggest question. The much bigger question is, why do those Christians want to not believe in the resurrection? Why is it important for them to not believe? That's a more important question than the scientific debate because that leads you down a road that tells you why and where their thinking goes. See, the foundation of our faith is that Jesus is God. And if Jesus is not raised from the dead, then that probably means that Jesus is not God. And as I listen to Christians who think like this, that say that Jesus was not resurrected and I try to understand them, I I come to the realisation that their refusal to believe in the resurrection leads them down this winding path that usually ends up with things like God is not a real person, God is just an idea. God is a consciousness in ourselves that guides the way we live. And the Bible and Jesus are simply there to guide us in a good way to live in the world and the Bible It's not God's voice, it's just written by wise people from history who are using mythological stories as a tool to teach moral truth. And they build a version of Christianity around that. Now, that's a very different version of Christianity to what we believe in. They'll say that we believe the same thing, but it kind of, sort of, really isn't. Now, I'm not saying that these guys are bad people, mostly they are super nice people. And they're much less judgmental than kind of our brand of Christian. They're really nice people. And when you talk to them on a deeper level, though, you find out that their belief is pretty much unrecognisable to ours. So that's what happens when Christians don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. But what about for the general person on the street? Well, usually they just haven't thought about it at all. If they have thought about it, they think we're crazy. I read a book by a guy who, who was talking about what the general person in Australia thinks of Christians. And, and it was very enlightening and a little bit painful, all right? So just to know what people are thinking. Um, but it was very helpful as well. But most people haven't thought about it to that level. They just think that what you believe is ridiculous. Of course Jesus didn't rise. That's why you Christians are so weird, because you believe in stupid stuff like that. 
But they still want to believe in a heaven. And they still want to be resurrected when they die. So they want to be resurrected, but they don't believe in resurrection, especially Jesus's. Kind of haven't thought it through. And so when it comes down to it, the end point of all of this thinking is more a philosophical one than it really is anything else. The ultimate implication of what you believe about resurrection is not whether you can prove it scientifically. It's not whether you can prove it historically. The ultimate implication really is this. What kind of God do you believe in? What kind of God do you believe in? Do you believe in the kind of God who can raise the dead, who has the capability to raise the dead? Because if you do believe in that kind of God, then the resurrection is not improbable, not unreasonable. Or do you believe in the kind of God who can't raise the dead? Because for me personally, this is just my personal thing, if there is a God who can't raise the dead, what's the point of worshipping that God? That God is not very powerful. That God can't do very much for me. There is no point worshipping that God. I know a million things that do not have the capability to raise the dead, that do not have the capability to determine destiny, that do not have the capability to affect eternity. I don't see the point of worshipping those not very powerful things. But I do see the point in worshipping someone who is powerful enough to impact things that we humans are too weak to impact. They can change what we can't change. God can make an eternal difference. I, I see that kind of God as something worth believing in. Now, some people think it's important to prove scientifically in the resurrection. Some people think it's important to believe scientifically things like creation. And they say, we should let the science decide for us. We've just got to figure out the right science. I disagree. Now, I still like you if you believe that and I'm still happy to talk to you. My dad is like that, okay? And I get along very well with my dad. But I don't take that point of view. I disagree, mainly because scientists are kind of like doctors and apologies to any doctors that I offend here, but doctors change their minds all the time, don't they? I mean, I've had breathing problems for the last three years and the doctors just keep changing their minds about what should happen because the science keeps changing. It's not that the doctors are a problem, but the science keeps changing. And what they said three years ago, no, no, that's bad for you. I just got told the other month by the doctor that, oh, we've changed our minds, that stuff won't hurt you at all, so we can try that again. Come on! All right? Science changes its mind all the time. And for decades, we've been told that we were stupid for thinking that the world could have started by anything other than an accident. Well, guess what? Science has changed its mind. And this is not Christian scientists, this is evolutionary scientists. They've changed their minds. In the latest research, they're saying the world was too complicated to have been an accident. Well, they've been ridiculing people that have said that for the last 50 years. Richard Dawkins himself is on record as saying he believes the world was seeded, like planted, by an alien. And some of you laughed, but here's the thing, I agree with him. 
I agree that the world was planted by an alien and I, I applaud him for having the courage to say so because that's opposite to what people like him have been saying for a long time. The Bible also agrees that the world was seeded by an alien. It was seeded by someone with no more knowledge and power than humans and by someone who was not born on the earth. That's an alien. The difference between me and someone like Richard Dawkins is that I call that alien God. I just don't call God an alien. I don't use that name for him, okay? But technically he is, all right? And there's a big debate about what happened after the world was seeded and evolutionists say this and creationists... But that's, that's not, that doesn't matter so much for this part of the argument. Many modern scientists believe that the alien who seeded the world uh, then forgot about the world or abandoned the world and they think of it kind of like a kid who forgets to feed their fish or an ant farm and they die. I cannot accept that. I choose to believe that the person who started the world is still interested in us and loves us and has not forgotten us, has not abandoned us. So for example, Richard Dawkins and I on that, we actually agree, but then what are the implications of the world being planted? Well, then we go on very different train tracks. So it's sad that everybody who abandoned their faith because the scientists told them to Well, now scientists are telling them that it wasn't such a stupid idea after all. So we cannot rely on scientists for the biggest questions in life. They're very helpful. I like scientists. They teach us a lot of stuff and I enjoy many things that scientists have invented. I'm not against scientists. But for the big questions in life, we just don't know enough. The origins of the universe, what happens after you die, I don't feel the need to prove those things. For me, you can forget the proof about all of that. Go to the end. What's the implications of those beliefs? And you can see where you're heading and if it's a good place that you end up. If you believe there is no resurrection and that God is not capable of raising the dead, then the implication is that when you die, that's it and your life meant and means nothing. Okay, fine, go for that. I'm perfectly happy for you to believe that. But for me, I refuse to believe that I am an accident. I refuse to believe that my life means nothing. And the only place that that leads is that there is a higher power and that that higher power believes in me and that higher power is interested in me and loves me and wants the best for me. And therefore, in faith, I respond to that belief. And these questions are not just Christianity questions. They keep coming up in all people, in all cultures, the origins of life, who's in charge, what happens after we die. Those are questions that all people everywhere ask. And so when it comes to whether you're believing in Jesus' resurrection and whether that is reasonable or not, my opinion is exactly the same. If my God is not powerful enough to raise Jesus from the dead... What's the point? Why would I believe in that God? But if my God is powerful enough, what's the problem? It's not unreasonable. Suddenly it becomes perfectly rational. 
So to answer Paul's question to Felix and Agrippa, which was, why is it so hard for you to believe in the resurrection of the dead? It's hard because you don't want to. That's what makes it hard. And so to wrap it up and to bring it down to us today in Caroline Springs in December 2016, Christmas is upon us. And you might have noticed that at the carols thing on Christmas Eve, unless you're here, which you will be, but you can watch the start until Santa comes and then you come here. You might have noticed that at the carol service on TV, there's less and less carols happening. In fact, two years ago, there were no carols about Jesus. There might have been one or two, but I was trying to count them. There must have been a backlash because then the next year they were all back again, right? But someone is trying to take references to Jesus out of the Christmas Eve carols. And two years ago, they, they were winning. And in Australia, in the middle of summer, we were singing about snow. And what we were saying was, we would rather sing about snow than about Jesus. Even though snow has no cultural relevance for us, we chose to say, Jesus has no cultural relevance to us, so we'll not sing about that. But even though snow doesn't, we'll still sing about that because we've got nothing else. Alright? Middle of summer, we want to sing about snow more than Jesus. Why? Not because it's culturally relevant, and not, it's not, got nothing to do with that, it's a choice. It is easier for us to celebrate snow than to sing about a person whose life speaks a message that we actually need to respond to. That's what it comes down to. And it's the same with the resurrection. Why is it so hard for you to believe in the resurrection of the dead? Because I don't want to believe that God is real because that has implications for my life. Why is it so hard to believe that the birth of Jesus and the celebration of that? Because I don't want to believe that God is real because that has implications for my life. Why is it so hard to believe in the resurrection of the dead? Because I don't want to. Why is it so hard to believe in Christmas? Because I don't want to. And so the great debates of our time and the great debates of history really are not debates. They're actually choices. And only you can choose.